Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Now here we are in the Eastertide season. Just a few more weeks left of it, so I'll say it one more time. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, please allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. As I begin this morning, I want to provide an illustrative story to you. It's actually a personal one, a very personal story to me. One of my very good and dear friends... Uh, Dr. Rob Maddox, a faithful Christian elder, Bible teacher, and physician. He, uh, he got cancer a number of years ago, and he went through a good seven years of this. And, and on his carrying bridge, if you're not familiar with that, that's a way for you to, like, in a closed group, communicate to your whole family and friends what's going on. And in his carrying bridge communications, it was one of the most godly and... Uh, just fully trusting in God uh, narrative that he would give as he went through the struggles of dying of cancer. But I remember one particular day, I'm driving back from uh, a distant town, and I'm not that far from home, and I get a call from his wife, and he's in the hospital, and they, and they just told her that they're going to discontinue dialysis for him. And of course, that means at that point, death is very near. And so I, I make the adjustment to drive to the hospital. And when I arrive, I go upstairs and I get in the room. I, I, I talk to his wife and his sister-in-law who's there. And, you know, they haven't even called the children yet for them to come in. And so I listen, you guys can go in the hallway. I'll stay with, with Rob. And Rob is conscious. He's awake. You know, at one point they, they talk about how weak he is, and he's, he's got the blankets kind of pulled up over him, and he's, just his hands are sticking out. And to show that he's not dead yet, he just kind of takes his fists, and he does like this. I'm still alive, right? And he's totally cognizant about what's going on. So they all step out of the room, and I'm sitting there in the room, and so, you know, you start talking, and, you know, what do you say? What do you do? Well, Dr. Rob and I, we, we spent uh, a lot of time on the missions committee together. Uh, we led, co-led trips to Peru and, and did mission work there. And, um, you know, he and I coordinated all the communications and trips of the missionaries and, and foreign pastors who would come through. And it was the time of the year where I would reach out and I would contact everybody and get information and so I just started going down the list. I knew that he cared and wanted to know. So I just started talking to him about these things. And I got to one particular missionary, and I said, you know, I've, I've tried everything. I've, I've emailed. I've tried to call the phone number that I've got on file, and I just can't reach him. I even went to his website and tried going through there, just not working at all. And here he is. This is literally hours before his death. And, and I'm, I'm explaining this, and he's, he's trying to talk, and he's very weak. He's got the oxygen mask on, and I can see he's trying to say something. I can't quite hear him, so I get down real close, and, and he says, get my phone. I said, I beg your pardon? He's like, get my phone. So 
So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm not tracking here. So I get his phone and I hand it to him. And I can see him trying to manipulate his fingers and, and punch in the, the security code. And then it dawns on me what he's doing. He's opening up his phone so he can give it to me so that I can get the personal cell number to this missionary. You know, Dr. Rob, at his very last moments, was concerned that the church's support for missions continued. He was about his father's business to the very last moment. And by the way, his family got there and he, he passed away. This is probably 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And by 2 o'clock in the morning, he went to be with his glorious Lord and Savior. And I, I tell this story, and it's gripping, and it's hard for me because he was my friend. But this is, in fact, what we have in John chapters 13 through 17. It's known as the upper room discourse. In these five chapters, Jesus' final words to his disciples prior to their abandonment of him, his trial, his suffering and death, Jesus knows what is about to transpire and his concern is not for himself, but rather for his disciples. Jesus is reminding them both of his teachings from the last three years and imparting the clarity of God, the Father's plan for them, not only in the coming days, but in God's plan to take those reconciled to Him to be the ambassadors for discipling the nations. Jesus is acting like a big brother who knows He's going away and leaving His little brothers to carry on the work. Every parent in this room who has taken or sent their child to a place where they will establish themselves, understands what Jesus is doing. During this last dinner, we as parents, we get caught up in trying to say, what else do they need to know? Perhaps it's a car ride across the country or to the airport. You know that you've taught them many lessons. You've directed your children to God by the work of Jesus Christ. But yet you still try to go over the last things you think you might want to emphasize one last time. This is the narrative that we find in this portion of Scripture in the Gospel of John. Last week we covered John chapter 13 and we need to remember that there are no breaks. There are no chapters and verses in the text. And so really this is all one discussion from chapter 13 all the way through 17. So we need to remember and look before we start John chapter 14, the very end of John 13 and verse 37, Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, you will lay down your life for my sake, or will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Right after Jesus undermines the false piety and bravado of Peter with the stark acknowledgement that Peter would deny him three times this very night, and in fact, we know from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus told all of his disciples that they would all forsake him. 
Jesus follows this with an encouragement. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You know, at every moment where Jesus is speaking to his people, speaking to the disciples, he is at, on the one hand being truthful with them, and at every moment he is compassionate. He does not want them to be troubled, even though trouble is coming. He wants them to believe in God and believe in him. And of course, if we look in John chapter 14, it's a very familiar passage. As a matter of fact, it has one of the most familiar evangelistic passages in verses 5 through 7. Jesus says to, to Je or excuse me, Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And in verse 6, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. This passage makes the point abundantly clear that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. I say all of this as I want us to think and understand the, where we're at in the passage. And we want to pick up from this point but I want to point out something to you here you have Jesus speaking and in John 14 we're gonna see Jesus talk about his father talk about himself and talk about the Holy Spirit you know God's Word did not change because of Jesus the, the concept of the Trinity is from the very beginning even in creation Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says this, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This word spirit here is breath. It is the breath of God. It is the Spirit. In Genesis 1.26 it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness job 33 4 says the spirit of god has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life psalm 33 verse 6 says by the word of the lord the heavens were made and the host of them by the breath of his mouth psalm 104 verse 30 says this you send forth your spirit they are created and you renew the face of the earth Psalm 148.5 says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. Certainly, Trinitarian understanding of the Old Testament becomes much more clear once you have Jesus revealing His truths in the New Testament. And of course, Trinitarian interpretations of Genesis 1.26 have been common since the early centuries of the church. Justin, Irenaeus, Basil, Augustine, Calvin, Zanchi, and Barth all interpret the us as the divine self-consultation. 
when, when God created the world, they were all together and they were discussing the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all together saying, let us make man in our image. And all of the parts, all of the parts of God, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in divine, loving counsel. We're reminded, of course, in John 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing that was made was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning with verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 tells us, For it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who was shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. I'll pause right there and just say this part, this portion here which says the face of Jesus Christ. God made us with faces. Relationships are through faces. It's not a voice. It's not a computer screen. I don't care what anybody says. If you're in business, a computer screen is only this much. It's not like a real relationship. You can see their face, but it's not the same as being in their presence. And this, of course, I would say this. This is why, as those who serve communion to you, we don't want to do that with our faces covered. Because when we're up here, and I say this very humbly, when I preach up here, I am Christ's and God our Father's voice to his people when we serve communion we are representatives of God to the people and we have a God who is relational and it is in a way directly our face that we are providing and standing in God's stead to you Back to our text here, 11, or Hebrews 11.3 says this, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. I simply want to say this, that again, if we take these passages that I just read from the New Testament, it gives us clarity of understanding the Trinity and the Trinitarian view of God in the Old Testament. It is very important. Jesus clearly teaches that He and the Father are one and that the Spirit is of the Father and the Son and will be sent to be the advocate who stands with all of Jesus' disciples. Jesus in His midst of preparation for all of the disciples, both at that time all the way to where we are now and every disciple in the future, He is telling us, that He and the Father are one and that the Spirit proceeds from them and that the Spirit is here for us. Our text continues in John 14, verse 9. Jesus said to him, this is to uh, Judas, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? I guess to Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? 
The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but listen here, people of God, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe in me for the sake of the works themselves. Now this is very interesting because we see here that Jesus again is clearly saying, if you want to be, if you want to get to, to God the Father, it is through me. And if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And he's making it very clear that it is God the Father who's doing these works. But Jesus tells us that he's going to send a helper. Now I want to just say something here. We'll come to this a little more, but, but pay attention to these words because I think a helper kind of gives us the wrong impression. Verse 12 of John 14 says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, now I want to say this, most assuredly here is amen and amen. It is a firm and faithful thing that I'm about to tell you. Anytime he says this, you know, in the old, in the old King James, it was verily, verily, I say unto you, he's, he's like, I'm making a point here. I'm not just saying amen once, I'm saying it twice, and I'm making it very clear that you need to hear this because it is firm and faithful. And he says this, I say to you, he who believes, that is to commit your trust in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name that I will do, the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, this passage has been misunderstood throughout the history of the church, especially during the last 50 years. This passage has been misused to treat prayer as if it is God's slot machine where you put the coin in, you pull the, the handle down, and God dispenses the jackpot answer. The context of this entire passage, both before and after, is about completing the mission that all disciples and all of Christians have been created for. God gave Adam and Eve the cultural mandate or first command in Genesis 1.28 where he says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now this is important. Of course, you've heard me. If you've been in my sermons for the last, oh, I don't know, since, uh, you know, Basically, our whole period here of Advent to now, you will have heard me say again and again, tying the cultural mandate to the Great Commission, right, over and over again. So this be fruitful and multiply does, and taking dominion is about having children, but it's also about every person that the Lord engrafts into the body of Christ. We are to be fruitful and multiply, to make disciples of all the nations. The context of this passage is that for his whole ministry, Jesus has been calling all of Israel to remember their calling to be priests to the whole world, preaching repentance to Yahweh, the living God, for the forgiveness of their sins. They were to be the priests, and one of them was to be the high priest. But we know that Jesus is going to be the permanent high priest and to make an atonement for all of sin. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, Therefore, in other words, pay attention. In all things, he that is Jesus had to be made like his brethren, that is, take on the form of a man, that he might be merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. These things that Jesus says that, are, that we are going to do that are greater are pertaining to making disciples of all the nations. The church will truly see the fulfillment of the promise in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 that says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so we come back to our, our passage in John chapter 14, at verse 15, where we see this. If you love, that is, to be well pleased, to, to be contended with, or with the thing, that is, you care about it, you, you, you love it, you, you are passionate about it. It says this, keep my commandments. That is, not just keeping, but observing them, and also preserving them. In verse 16 it says, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper. In this, in this case, this paraclete is one who is this advocate. He is summoned. He is called to one side. It is especially someone that is called to one's aid, who pleads another's cause before a judge, a pleader, a counselor, for defense, a legal assistant. This isn't just somebody that shows up when he calls you. He is with you. He stands with you in all things. Jesus' main concern here in this passage is that the disciples know that God the Holy Spirit will be with them in all circumstances to stand beside them and guide them to complete the task given them by God. He says all of this. And again, that he, that is the Holy Spirit, may abide. That is, he won't depart. He will continue to be present so that they may be held and kept continually. And it's interesting, as he says this, <laughs> he goes on and says that he may abide, that is, the Holy Spirit may abide with you forever. It was very interesting, as I was looking at this, I recognized that this is not one word here. Okay, you know, we put forever, but, sorry, sweating the eyes. Um, it is, it is, it is two, two words, okay, and it is into ever. It is into all things, for all time, for all moments. The Spirit is with you and around you at all times. We see in verse 17 of John 14, it says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees. That is, they don't perceive Him, nor knows Him. That is to say, they are not in a relationship with Him. But you know Him, for He dwells, He abides with you, and will be with you, by you, and among you. This is a great encouragement to all of us. The Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit is our advocate given to us to stand in with and among us till the end of all things. Whatever challenges you find before you right now, the Spirit of God is with you. And whether you are suffering with sickness 
or family stresses, whatever these things are that are going on in your lives, the Spirit is with you and He is here to empower you to do what? To make disciples in life, in death, in suffering, in the challenges of rearing children, in loving your neighbors, starting with the one lying next to you in your bed. That's sometimes, sometimes the hardest one for us. We need to recognize that this is an encouragement that the Spirit of God will be with us, not just with and around us sometimes, but all the time to the very end of all things. We see that verse 18 gives us assurances. Jesus says this, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you in dwelling of the Father and the Son. A little while longer the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live and you will live also. Now think about this. Where does this come to, to, come to, to fruition? We see this in John chapter 20 and verse 19 where it says this, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he did what? He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus in these final hours, he's giving all these admonitions. He's teaching them, telling them, assuring them, saying, I'm not going to leave you. And we see just a few days later where he keeps this promise. The world, the unbelievers, they're not going to see me. You're going to see me. And you know what? The Spirit's going to come on you, and that is the breath of God, the Spirit of God. And what does Jesus do? He comes and stands in their midst, and he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. He did not leave them as, as orphans. And he does not leave you or I as orphans. We can rest assured that the Spirit of God is with us so that we may complete the mission that he has for us. It isn't a choice do I take the mission. God created you and I for this purpose. Back to John chapter 14, verse 20, we see that Christ is the mediator by love. And at that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That was very interesting. He talks about keeping commandments, loving the commandments, loving me. We need to remember this, people of God. Sometimes we struggle. We have difficulty keeping the commandments. These are God's instructions to us, His holy word. These are the things that God desires us to do. We need to love them. So first of all, if you're struggling, ask God to help you love them. But also we must remember that his, the Spirit's promise to be with us is even in those moments where we're struggling. But we must remember, as it says in Luke 3, verse 8, that we must produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, 
We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. People of God, this is a warning for us not to simply say, I am a Christian. I've been baptized. We must, in fact, demonstrate the fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus is the one who unites us to the Father. Jesus' work on the cross reconciles us to God the Father. A Christian should walk humbly and live a full life full of repentance to God and to one another. Repent when you recognize you've sinned. Repent to God. Repent to those around you. We see in verse 22 of John chapter 4 that there's some real clarity going on here. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. Judas did not quite get it yet that Jesus was telling them what they needed to know to carry on the mission of the good news that men may be reconciled to God. You see, he's stepping back. He's sending the Spirit. He is enabling them to do what they were created to do by the work of the Spirit in their life. Again, we see that it is important, though, that we obey God's Word. You see, in verse 23 of John 14, it says this, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Again, Jesus is equating his words to the words of the Father. And he says that you will keep, as a Christian, his word. We will, by the work of the Spirit, love Jesus and keep his word. All these words are, in fact, the Father's words. Again, we need to understand what the Spirit is doing with us. He is here to help teach and help us to remember Verse 25 of John 14 says this, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, that Advocate, that Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach. This word teach here doesn't simply mean instruct, but it is actually to understand the layers of things. So He will teach you all things. He will explain. The Spirit will help us to understand the depths of God. And He will bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. The Spirit, both to the first century disciples and us, opens our eyes to understand the Scriptures. And we remember that Jesus will later tell them in John 16 that the disciples will remember what He has told them with the implication that they might not stumble during persecution and difficult times. It is the Spirit that reminds us of God's words. And we see as we come to the end of this passage that Jesus says that there is no other peace. He says this in verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. He says this, Let not your heart be troubled, let it not be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. 
people of God, if you did what I did this week in preparation, and you Googled the word peace, there are almost 3.9 billion hits. The world is searching for peace. Consider the first question that shows up or is posed on Google. It says this, what is the real meaning of peace? This is a question that everybody wants answered. This is the answer that Google provides. Freedom or a period of freedom from public disturbance or war. A quiet calm state of mind. Agreement and harmony among people. An agreement to end war. The problem is that the world, unbelievers, do not know who the real enemy is. It is the sin in our lives that separates us from God, and Jesus is the only answer. Ephesians 2.14 says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished his flesh in his flesh the enmity that is the law of the commands contained in the ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross thereby putting the death putting to death the enmity and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Praise God for Christ's work on the cross. Our sins are forgiven. God our Father is at peace with us. At the very end of this chapter, there's a little prologue. And he's going to go on speaking to them, but it takes a, a point of pause. Because it says this in verse 29, And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, that you may believe. I will no longer much talk with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world might know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. And he says, Arise and let us go from here. Now it's very interesting. If you know me at all, if you've eaten with me or had a, a time to spend some some time with me you know I, I'm sort of like Columbo I, I just have one more question right <laughs> I've got something else I, I want to tell you I want to share and so Jesus is going to say arise let us go from here but it almost because it goes on for another two chapters you almost think that he's saying okay we're going to get up from the table and we're going to move over here to the couches or it's going to be like we do in the South. It's a super long kind of, we're going to get out the door, but we're going to keep talking, and it's another hour, because Jesus does go on in this discourse for two more chapters. But it's important that we recognize that, that as all that is going on, he says, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Jesus is our example to walk in obedience even in the midst of suffering, challenge, and difficulty. And he has, people of God, given us all that we need to carry out the mission by sending his Spirit. Let us pray. 
our Lord and our God, make of us blessed peacemakers, that having peace with you, we may have peace in our homes and might spread that peace abroad into all the world. We come to you, our Father, rejoicing in the peace that we have in Jesus Christ, asking that your prospering hand may use us mightily for the cause of Christ, our peace. In his name we pray. Amen.